Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I'm going to talk about conversion therapy. I'm going to talk about the history that goes back pretty far. I'm going to talk about what it is, and, and I'm going to talk about the current state of the laws and ethics regarding conversion therapy, which is the therapy that people will use. It's, it's a word for the therapies that people will use to try to change a, a gay person straight or a bisexual person straight. So that's what I'm going to talk about today, but let's introduce the podcast. First, this is the this is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle, and I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor, and I want to start with a story about a, a, a childhood friend of mine that I've talked about before. His name is Jason Graves. You can Google him. He's, he's Googleable. I, I met him in high school, and we were... We were, you know, I would say he was in my inner circle, you know, my, he was in my uh, top sort of 10 friends, I suppose, junior, senior year. And after graduation, we lost touch, but then I bumped into him a, a number of years after graduation and, and I think maybe 10 years, and we discovered that we had both become therapists in the mid 90s. I had gone to Antioch University, which is a very liberal school. And he had gone to Seattle Pacific University, which is a not-so-liberal school. And so uh, that was interesting. And then every once in a while over Facebook or something, we would chat. And then in 2008, he and I met up for lunch. And I remember – and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but just to um, reiterate that story was that – he, at the time, in 2008, he was a, a media presence because of conversion therapy, actually. And we were talking over lunch, and he and, – and, and I had just started thinking – I had just started listening to podcasts, actually. I, I probably, I don't know, six months, a year earlier, had started listening to the few podcasts that were out at the time. And I was talking with him about it, and I, and I was like, you know what? I just had this thought on the way over to meet you for lunch – about starting my own podcast, you know, and, and I don't know, I just, just a random brainstorm in my head. And he, he was like, Oh my God, Kirk, you should totally do that. You'd be great at it. And he really talked me up, which made no sense because there was nothing about me that would make anyone think I would be a good podcaster back then. I, I'm terrified of public speaking. I have a funny voice. I think my brain doesn't work very well when I need to talk about things. Uh, I've gotten better over the years for sure. But back then, I, I, I don't know why anyone would say I was good. So, But he, he was so effective at convincing me that I should do a podcast that I went home and I was like, man, okay, well, at least Jason thinks I should do a podcast. So, And I really started thinking about it. And, and then one thing led to another. And within a month or so, I, was, I started this Psychology in Seattle podcast. And so then we started to communicate more um, as he started sharing with me different media appearances he had been on regarding conversion therapy, I obviously took issue with conversion therapy and we would uh, debate about it. And I, I would at back then in 2008, 2009, I was really trying to figure out why such a cool guy, such a nice person was so interested in, making gay people straight. I just thought, why would you do that? It's, it seems so backward, so Stone Age, 
so harmful. And so we would debate about this. And he would basically, well, I'll get into why, but uh, I, I watched a video about, and you can actually see, he's on YouTube. You can just Google Jason Graves. You have to spell the Y, J-A-Y-S-O-N, Graves. He's uh, He is extremely humble and very real and very self-disclosing. When you imagine a famous conversion therapist, or at least when I imagine a famous conversion therapist, I think of like a Dr. Phil kind of character who is very uh, paternalistic and, and, very, and talks down to people and uh, very unapproachable, someone who likes to shame people for their sexuality and stuff. And Jason is, com- is completely the opposite of that. He comes out of the gate almost all the time and just talks about his own life. He talks about – and he's very he, – he doesn't judge people and he doesn't come across like he hates gay people at all. He, he, but he still believes that being gay is a sin and he believes that being gay is something that will stray away from God and that – being gay is something that you need to address. You need to try to resist the temptation to have same-sex sexual relations. But if you if you watch his videos, he, he often will talk about his story, and he'll talk about how as a child he was sexually abused and physically abused, I think. And then he talks about how he was addicted to pornography and masturbation and how he was bullied. <clears throat> Incidentally, he talks about how he because he so he grew up further i grew up so i'm in seattle now but i grew up in the sort of rural edge of seattle the seattle area in what was called issaquah at the time called Spanish now and he grew up further east i believe in carnation so i grew up in a sort of rural suburban area and he grew up in an even more rural area and i think that's where he grew up anyway and then he transferred to my less rural neighborhood and and he could sort of reinvent himself because where he grew up there he was being bullied and he was being called you know all sorts of gay slurs and stuff and he was a very confused young kid and when he moved and went to our school he reinvented himself and we became friends and I just thought he was a great guy and we started hanging out and he talks about how that was a really great time for him and he and i didn't know that at the, at the time i just thought we were just two guys uh being friends but back for him back then it was this huge important moment for him because for the first time in his life he had a group of guys that he could pal around with and hang out with and not be bullied <clears throat> and He's he's the nicest guy, and he's funny, and he's interesting, and he listens well. And all you got to do is watch the, his videos on YouTube to, to see that. Well, he talks about how after after high school he went to college and he engaged in the quote unquote gay lifestyle, but then he found God and he he says he got saved and then he got married and then he talks about how he kept masturbating to gay pornography and and he just talks about this freely. He is not ashamed of it. He just and I think, at least on one level, he he's a he's a wonderful model for not being ashamed of one's sexuality. He's uh, unless uh, with the caveat that his message around gay uh, behavior being a sin uh, that's extremely shaming of of 
LGBT people. But uh, aside from that, <laughs> he's very, um, you know, very open about talking about his life and, and very frank about it. So he, he gets married and he thinks that's going to solve his life and it didn't really. And, and he kept he was he kept being interested in gay porn and he tried to stop. And he by then he was a therapist and he's like, well, I, I can fix this on my own. I don't need help from the outside. But eventually he said that he needed to actually uh, hand it over completely over to God, as, as he put it, which I'm guessing means openly talking about it with other religious people and and maybe even talking about it in, in group situations at church. And he, through that, started to uh, gain control, as he might say, over his homosexual urges. And he started treating others because he's a therapist, and so he actually started to treat others. And... Whether or not he would call it conversion therapy or not, I don't know, but it essentially is. He started to treat other religious people who didn't want to be gay about how to not be gay. And then he became known for it, and he started to go on news programs and religious TV shows, and he had DVDs that he would sell. And and now he's, as far as I can tell, he is one of the most famous... Uh, people um, in a, in the United States who talks about conversion therapy and also porn addiction. So anyway, as I learn in, about his approach and to watch these videos, on one hand, I respected his honesty and his ability to be humble in this process. But I didn't agree with his position that um, being gay is wrong and needs to be changed to people. There was a lot about his story that I totally respected, um, and uh, and there's a lot about him that's very inspirational and very normalizing in some ways. But he, according to his sect of Christianity, and, and I'm going to refer to it as a sect of Christianity because the majority of Christians are accepting of gay people uh, are they support the majority of Christians support gay marriage. Or at least it's it's at least very close to fifty percent, if not even if not more than fifty percent of American Christians, not evangelicals yet, which I'll get into in a second. But by by definition, if if you are if there are different beliefs within Christianity, you can you can refer to them as different sects, right? You have not sects, but s e c t s, right? So you have the the Catholic sect. I don't know if that's the right word, but but you have different denominations and different groups of people, and you have Christians who are super okay, if not you know uh, completely accepting of gay and bisexual people, and then you have another group of Christians who are completely against it, and I guess you have people in the middle, and you have different churches that say different things, and so based on his particular sect of Christi- of Christianity. The dogma is that it's wrong and needs to be changed, but other Christian sects don't believe that at all. And he was equating homosexuality in his videos to child molestation and to human trafficking and to porn addiction and to other criminal activity. And what I was telling him was, that's just wrong. It's, it, there are those things. There are child molestation. There, there, is a, there is such a thing called human trafficking, and there is porn addiction, and there is criminal activity, but it has nothing to do with being gay. 
certainly there are gay people who involve themselves in terrible acts, and there are heterosexual people who engage themselves in terrible acts. And the rates appear to be the same across those groups of people. So, so if you if you really wanted to address this, you would you would divorce it from uh, what sexual orientation you are, and just say let's try to address child molestation, let's try to address porn addiction, blah blah. blah. So, the but after exposing myself to him and his, it's a funny way of putting it, but after watching his videos and debating with him and finding out his perspective and other people's perspective uh, that he agrees with, I, I walked away with a very interesting viewpoint myself. Going into the debates with him, which I have to say was a while ago, but going into those debates with him, I, I saw conversion therapists as terrible human beings, just racist, bigoted, hateful people. But after watching videos and talking to people that do conversion therapy and talking to clients because or watching videos of clients, talk, you know, basically giving testimonials, I think it's way more complicated than that. They're, these people are not evil people. And maybe you out there already know this. You're like, of course, they're not evil people. That's stupid, Kirk. But to me, I, I don't know. I just had this really cartoonish straw man that I'd built up in my head about them. And you, when you actually listen to them, you're like, oh, okay, I, there's, this is complicated. These are, these are nuanced things. Um, now, I still 100% believe and know that conversion therapy is based on a, on a societal ridiculousness of bigotry and of a fear about something that is not something to be afraid of. <laughs> Um, now I know that I'm a hundred percent on that. There's no debate on that, but when you actually talk to people who do conversion therapy and people who, and clients of conversion therapy, you're like, Oh, I, this is, I, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's like, should these people have the right to seek the kind of therapy that they want to have based on their belief system? Um, and, and we're heading in a direction in our society where, it's becoming illegal, essentially, and uh, which I think is a good thing. But there's going to be a group of people who are, uh, are going to be upset by that <laughs> or are already being upset by that. But anyway, let, uh, let's, let's move on here. I'll talk about that more in detail later. Now, I should say that I, in my 20-plus years as a therapist, I've had clients who have come to me for basically conversion therapy. You know, I've had a lot of different clients, and so sometimes clients will come to me and say that they want help for uh, their gay impulses. I, I had I had one client who came to me, uh, and uh, he had been happily married for many many years. had He had kids, and he had finally really admitted to himself that he had gay impulses. And he was married to a woman, I should say. So he's married to a woman and he was living the life of a heterosexual because he grew up in a generation where being out was really just not an option. And so he just faked his way through it. And he just and he also denied to himself that he was even gay himself. This is a very common story for gay people who are of a certain age. And uh, 
and even today, right? But more more prevalent in the past. And he came to me and he said, Kirk, uh, please help me to get rid of these gay impulses because I'm starting to cheat on my wife and that's wrong. So please help me to not not be attracted to men and, and to try to control these urges because I, I'm, my life is going to fall apart. I'm, my wife might divorce me. I might lose custody of my kids and and I just can't have that happen. So in this situation, it's it's sort of weird, right? It he's not asking, he's not coming to me without a life circumstance and saying, you know, turn me straight. He's saying, I'm married, I have kids, I have a life, and I I want to stay married. I love my wife and I love my family. I love being in a family. And please help me with this. And so at first I thought, well, I I can't do that because you are clearly, you know, we would explore for a while and and I would say, well, you know, we've explored it and you've told me that you are inside 100% gay and you've been living this lie this whole time. So I don't know if I feel good about pro- ad- having the goal of therapy be for you not to live your your the life that you deserve to live. But then he would say, but Kirk, I I deserve to have a family. I deserve to have my wife. I deserve to have my kids. And yeah, I have to sacrifice this part of me, but but I want I think I want to to sacrifice that part of me. And and I was like, well, I don't know. Let's let's exp- I don't know if I feel good about this because it feels like conversion therapy to me. And so Again, we entered into a very exploratory, exploratory uh, realm where I was like, "Are you sure that this is the path you want?" Because you know, you could amicably, amicably divorce and stay totally in your wife's life and stay totally in your children's lives, and then be able to explore your uh, "quote unquote" true sexuality. And so we explored that option. We explored what that meant and if you wanted to do that. And sure there's a part of him that wanted to do that. But when it but when it but the bottom line was he did not after much exploration that I thought would lead to him wanting to get a divorce. He was very adamant that you know what? We've explored it and I am 100% sure that I do not want that life. I I if I could go back in time yeah, I would love to start over and just and just live my true sexuality and be gay. But it's been 30 years now of this of this heterosexual marriage and family and I I don't I don't I don't want to give that up. I don't want to give up living with my wife and and loving and being married. I like being married. I don't you know, it's not the ideal sexual situation, but I, I love my wife and I love my kids and I love family and I love our extended family. And I, I don't want to give that up. And I don't, I don't want that to change. And again, I would say it doesn't have to, doesn't have to, you don't have to give it up. <laughs> but he's like, you know what? I, I just, I just want to stay married. I'm like, okay. So, so, so then we entered into this long-term therapy in which he would come in and, and we would talk about how he could re- restrain himself from trying to interact with with men sexually 
and how he would refrain from um, just, you know, that life. And it felt very weird to me. I didn't feel great about it. And I consulted about it and talked with others. Uh, I talked with gay men about it and they was like, yeah, you know, if that's what he wants to do, you've explored it. And, and you know, it, he has the right to choose his life and he has the right to choose his therapy as, as long as you believe that he has, he's making a choice based on um, his own uh, belief system and his own life choices. And he's not making, you know, if, if, if another client came in and said, I, you know, I'm gay and please make me straight. And we explored it and, and we discovered that really the only reason why he wanted to be straight was because his family hated gay people and his religion hated gay people. And he was being bullied at school because he was gay. In, in that instance, I, I, I would really, really try and and probably succeed. I'm guessing because of the the I don't know innate nature of this is is look there are communities of people who are extremely accepting, if not welcoming, of gay people, and the communities that you're in right now are extremely oppressive and terrible and unfair to you. And how about you try hanging out with people who appreciate you and your sexuality and see how that feels. And then, you know, he tries that out and he's like, Oh my God, you know, I, I don't have to beat myself up about this and I, I can be myself. I can be me. And it's these other people that have this weird point of view, you know, that, I, and I've done that before. I've, I've done that with trans people before. Uh, and so there are, I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling, but the point is, is, um, it, it, it can be weird sometimes is the point. But, okay, so let's talk about conversion therapy, but let's do so after the break. I'm going to go into the history and all that kind of stuff. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, just a reminder that this month's episodes are brought to you by Talkspace. If you use the promo code KIRK, K-I-R-K, you get a discount on your online therapy. Talkspace is uh, a really great online counseling website that connects you with online counselors. I actually had a patron wrote right in and, and she described her experiences with Talkspace. Let, let me find that. The patron writes, she, she says, I love my therapist on Talkspace. She wrote love in all, in all caps. She says that my therapist before that I had in office was terrible, and my therapist on Talkspace is really great. Now, as I'm, this is not to say that in-office therapists are terrible, but this is to demonstrate that uh, you can have good and bad therapists in both arenas. And she says that she travels a lot, and it's really hard for her to meet with someone in their office, and so... Talkspace, she says, Talkspace is perfect because I've had sessions in the car, at a rest stop, or anywhere. And she says that when she has a stressful event, whenever it happens, she can instantly contact her her therapist on Talkspace, and your and the therapist will get back to her pretty quickly. And so uh, she she really enjoys it. She she's also talking about that the process to pick a therapist is interesting and there's a lot of therapists available, you know, cause usually when you 
go through your insurance, you have a limited amount of therapists in your area. But, but she's saying that she was given a, a lot of choice to um, choose her therapist. So again, use the promo code Kirk, K-I-R-K. When you use the promo code, you get a discount. And you also signal to Talkspace that you're one of my listeners, which uh, encourages them to continue to sponsor this podcast, which uh, we uh, really enjoy their sponsorship. Okay, so let's go on to conversion therapy. It is called a number of different things. It, it's it has a number of names, but the the main names are conversion therapy or sexual re- reorientation therapy or reparative therapy. And the definition of conversion therapy is the counseling practice of trying to change an individual's sexual orientation from being LGB to straight. So being a lesbian or gay or bisexual to straight. Now, trans people are often not included in the definition of conversion therapy because conversion therapy is primarily, if not solely, focused on the sort of person you're attracted to, not your gender identity. But of course, there are probably people out there who use conversion therapy, quote unquote conversion therapy, to try to make trans people cisgender. So um, uh, so there's that. Plus, there are gay and bi trans people as well. So, um, But it, it should be noted that conversion therapy isn't at least traditionally considered to be an issue for um, for all the LGBTQ letters. It's just LG, LGB. Um, okay, so the history. Well, I'm going to go into the history history in a second, but but I want to talk uh, about the history of the treatment models, the treatment methods that people have used over the last hundred years to try to make gay people straight. Well, one treatment method is psychotherapy. Uh, psychoanalysis and, and other kind of forms of therapy have been used to try to find the root cause, so to speak, of the homosexuality and heal that person so that they can be, quote-unquote, normal and heterosexual. Another treatment method is prayer. That uh, There's a lot of praying, a lot of religious praying that will happen, or coaching someone to behave more stereotypically by their cisgender, you know, label and what they've been assigned at birth. And so, so that's one, you know, you, you take a, a gay teenage boy and you try to make him act more of a quote unquote man, which is of course ridiculous because gender, uh, the 99.9% of masculinity and femininity is a, is a cultural idea. Okay. Uh, also another treatment method for, uh, that is, has been used in conversion therapy is aversive conditioning procedures like shock therapy or nausea inducing drugs. Basically you strap them down. It's sort of like clock or orange. You strap someone down, or I guess you don't need to strap them down because they're, they're, they might be very willing, but they, maybe they aren't willing. And you show them homosexual images while shocking them or giving them nausea inducing drugs that, cause their body to associate homosexual imagery with pain and nausea, which is a uh, what they call aversive conditioning. Also, ha- another technique that's been used is orgasmic reconditioning. <clears throat> orgasmic reconditioning. 
basically in this form of <coughs> let me take a drink of water. <coughs> okay. So basically in this orgasmic reconditioning, it is to associate heterosexual images with orgasm. So you have the the patient masturbate while looking at heterosexual images and orgasm during it so that the body associates sexuality with heterosexuality. Another method that has been used in the past is what they call satiation therapy, which is basically overexposure, which sounds funny that it would work, but apparently they thought it would work. Essentially, you make someone watch hours and hours and hours of gay porn. (laughs) And that is, I guess, supposed to break someone of it. It's a symbol. All these are familiar to you if you know about the different aversive or conditioning types of therapies for addictions. They, if, if one treatment method technique is for cigarette addiction is to make you smoke many, many, many cigarettes. And basically, you end up getting so nauseous over the cigarettes because each cigarette just makes you feel worse and worse and worse that eventually your body doesn't want to smoke anymore. Another treatment method is to treat it like an addiction and buy and use group therapy and sex addicts anonymous and exercises of abstinence and getting a coin at your three month and six month and 12 month period and group support and talk about sobriety and, and having a sponsor, so to speak. So that's another method that's been used. Also in the past, they used to lobotomize gay people as a way of attempting to cure them. They would use the, the ice pick lobotomy. For those of you who know what that is, you know what that is. But for those of you who don't, they would literally take an ice pick, which is something that we don't see much today because we have ice machines in our fridges. But back in the day, I guess you would get this huge block of ice from the ice manufacturer and you would have this this ice pick and this little hammer And the ice pick is this really long chrome or, I don't know, some kind of metal thing. It's like the size of maybe a small chopstick. Well, what they would take is basically either an actual ice pick or maybe an implement that looked very much like an ice pick. And they they would pull your eyelid up and they would put the ice pick in the just above your eyeball. And they would use the hammer and hammer the ice pick directly through your skull and into your brain and into your frontal lobes. And then they would, I think they would move the, once the ice pick was inside your brain, they would move the ice pick around in a, and they would be severing and, and killing a brain material in the frontal lobe. And the idea was that it, it was supposed to cure people. And they did this sort of lobotomy for all sorts of things, psychosis and depression and just hysteria, people ask, acting out, that kind of stuff. And, of course, they used it for uh, being gay or bisexual. And what 
essentially what that does is you're destroying part of the brain. And when you, a lot of times when you destroy that part of the brain, you essentially become very docile. Uh, the idea was, is that it made you docile and made you more compliant. But really what it did is it, it basically turned part of your brain into vegetative, into a, into a non-functioning part as if you had a stroke or something. And it basically made you into a, a person who who needed to be hospitalized indefinitely. Now, some people it didn't have that effect. It it has a. I should do a whole episode on this kind of lobotomy because it had a lot of different effects. Is the point because it was not an, it, it was not a precise, uh, you know, as you can imagine, a precise procedure, and they did it differently. And different practitioners did it differently. And so, anyway. Uh, they also would do castration, literally just cut off a man's penis as a way of curing their sexual orientation. Another thing they would do is with hormones, they would do what they call a chemical castration. They would also, and this, this one is, this one is just the best in its most horrible way, is their was there were physicians who would take a testicle from a straight man. I sub, I, I'm, I'm assuming a straight man who died and they would implant it into the gay man's scrotum. They would, they would take a ball from a straight dude and put it in as a third ball in the uh, gay man's scrotum. <laughs> I mean, what uh, I mean, lobotomy uh, testicles? Uh, my God! And I guess the idea was that if you had the nut of a straight dude, that it would change you straight. That's what they thought. But of course, there were all sorts of problems with that because your body ends up rejecting that because it's not a viable transplant, and. I mean, I don't know. Did they did they hook it up to uh, blood? I, I don't know. Anyway, it so there was that. There were people who did that. There's also something that I read called bladder washing, which I'm trying to imagine what that is. Maybe like it's like an enema for the bladder. My God, I don't I don't know what that. Was. And then also rectal massage. So so <laughs> so you're gonna take a, a gay or bisexual woman or man. And to make them no longer lesbian or gay or bisexual, you're going to massage their rectum. Uh, okay. So those are the various techniques that have been used over the past one or 200 years to make gay and bisexual people straight. Okay, so there is a lot of, in the past, you know, history, the overall thing is that in the Bible, it actually talks about gay people being sinners and, uh, you know, that there's something wrong with gay behavior and gay people. And so Christians will have a hard time accepting gay and bisexual people for this reason, because in the Bible, it's, it's very explicit. 
I don't have the exact Bible verses in front of me, but I've had them read to me. And I, I don't think they ever just flat out say like to be gay is a sin, but it's pretty clear in a number of different instances that gay behavior was unacceptable to God and that the natural order of things was for men and women to marry and have kids. But as uh, people on the pro LGBTQ side will say is that the Bible has a lot of stuff in it that is not relevant today, including the stuff about gay people. For example, Leviticus has all sorts of, in the Bible, has all sorts of uh, things that you can point to and be like, huh, that's in the Bible? That's weird. For example, if in Leviticus 15, you find a very clear passage that talks about how a woman who is having her period, who's menstruating, she needs to be separated from everyone else for seven days. And if you don't do that, you're, you're, you're acting against God. And if you sit where a menstruating woman has, has sat, then you have to wash all your clothes immediately and take a bath. Now, that is clearly laid out in the Bible. There is, it's not ambiguous. It's not told in some parable. It is in Leviticus, in the Bible, in the official Holy Bible. And it says, you must do these things. You must separate women when they're on their periods for seven days. And if you sit down where they sit down, you must wash and you must wash your clothes and da-da-da. It's unclean. Women who are menstruating are unclean. And it's very clear. But I don't know a single Christian who follows that. But yet they follow the uh, passages about men and women are the only people who are supposed to get married and, and about gay people. So the point is, is that when we argue with the minority of Christians who believe, who, who don't support gay marriage, we can, we can say, look, there's a way to reconcile this for you. You can retain all of your Christianity, all the good stuff, you know, that you can retain the do unto others part. That's wonderful. The, the don't kill people. That's wonderful. Give to charity. That's a wonderful thing. Don't hoard money. That's a wonderful thing. Love other people, particularly the poor and the sick. That's a wonderful thing in the Bible. I get all that. Uh, but there are some things in the Bible that don't make any sense today, like the menstruation thing. None of us think that a menstruating woman is unclean and needs to be separated from everyone else. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, from what I know, there are Orthodox people who actually do this sort of stuff. I think both Jewish and Christians, maybe Muslims. I don't know, but but you know the the I don't know a single. I've never heard of a single evangelical American Christian person who adheres to that particular passage in the Bible. So the point is 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 we can adjust our you know we can adjust the bible to our contemporary lives it's it's so it's it's there are things that make a lot of sense to follow do unto others give to the poor don't hurt others don't be envious of other people these are wonderful lessons and wonderful guidance uh you know the menstruation thing silly the gay thing silly we can we can call those things silly it's okay and there's many examples in the bible incidentally there's a lot of different uh, passages when you actually pull them out 
and read them, you're like, well, I don't know a single Christian who follows that one. And of course, Christians who want to hold on to their cultural bigotry of gay people will point to the context and they'll say, well, you know, that the context of that was different back then because of blah, blah, blah. And, but the gay thing, you know, that's, that's a sure word from God. God is very, very clear about it. And so, you know, they'll twist it around however they want. Um, but anyway, so, so that's the, so those are the treatment methods and that's basically the, the Bible deal. Um, now, I should say that there are non-Christians who are also against, um, as, you know, get, who hate gay, who are heterosexists and who don't support gay marriage and that sort of thing. So n- not only other religious people like Muslims and Jewish people who are against same-sex marriage, but also just atheist people and agnostic people. There's, uh, it's, a, it's a cultural thing, and that, that's maybe my big point here is that it's a cultural thing, not a religious thing. It, it's influenced by religion for sure, but by the sheer definition, which I'll get into later, that at least half, if not more, of Christians support same-sex marriage, then we can't really call it a religious thing. We can call it influenced by religion, but really what we're talking about, and, and the fact that we can look to, to people who don't adhere to any religion having the exact same view, that being gay is unnatural and wrong and, and immoral— then we can say that it's influenced by religion, but it's not a religious thing. It is a cultural thing. It's a it's a historical thing. It's 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 it. And religion is a historical thing, and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think we just need to be very clear that it is a cultural and it's more to me. It's more of a cultural thing than it is a religious thing. Religion has informed it, but. And maybe it began as a religion thing, but today it's, in my view, it's it's more of a sociocultural thing. Similar to how we have racism against black people and, and other people of color in America, that has nothing to do with religion. You could say it's influenced by religion in the past, particularly, but we would say that's a cultural thing. Well, it's the same with LGBTQ people. Our society is bigoted for a number of historical reasons towards a number of different groups of people. And, and LGBTQ people are a victim of that weird bigotry and uh, it gets associated with religion. But I, I so um, anyway, all right, so let's go to the history books now. Okay. Now, the history of conversion therapy is long. We could go back to the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans and other people that we have records about. And there's all, it's a very long, interesting story, but I'm just going to provide some, some sort of notable, more recent moments. For example, in the early 1800s, 1839, we have a Hungarian writer by the name of Karl Kurtbeny. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, that right, but he coined the term homosexual as he was writing about how in Hungary they shouldn't criminalize uh, gay people. Apparently at the time in Hungary in 1839, gay people were being persecuted. And Karl Kurt Benny was, was writing about it saying, look, homosexuality is, there's nothing wrong with it. It's normal. And our society shouldn't be 
persecuting this person. So it's just interesting that all the way back in 1839, we have this happening in Europe. Okay, skipping forward a number of years, 40-ish years, to 1886, and we have a psychiatrist by the name of Richard von Kraft-Ebbing. Von Kraft-Ebbing. And he wrote that homosexuality was a degenerative neurological disorder. So this European psychiatrist is like, homosexuality, is, there's something wrong with the brain, and we need to figure out a way to cure it. Okay, now we're around the time of Freud. And Freud, interestingly, had a lot to say about homosexuality and bisexuality. Apparently, it was an issue in Vienna and later in London when he moved there. So, as we all know, Freud wrote in the late 1800s and the early to early mid 1900s, and he actually refuted Kraft Ebbing's claim that homosexuality was an illness. He said that he found that gay people were were fine that he, he was he's like I've I've analyzed gay people and there's there's nothing wrong with them there's nothing quote they are distinguished by especially high intellectual development and ethical culture so so not only is he saying I've analyzed gay people and there's nothing wrong with them but actually they're super smart and they're very ethical people <laughs> you know? uh, so he also claimed that uh, so so that so. And Freud is fascinating. He's just a, such a fascinating character. because on, So on one hand, he was pretty adamant to point out that being gay is not something to pathologize. But he also said that homosexuality was, was basically a form of immaturity. He basically believed that all children have homosexual urges and that those adults who still have homosexual urges have not fully matured yet. So he, he considered homosexuality to be this holdover from childhood. Now he didn't, he didn't um, pathologize it really. He, he was just like, well, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're still basically like a kid is what he would say. And he also said that he could cure homosexuality with hypnosis. So that's something else that he said. He also said that conversion therapy, uh, conversion therapy patients often wanted to become heterosexual because they were worried about the disapproval from other people in society, which Freud thought was not a good enough reason to engage in that kind of therapy. So people would come to him in Vienna and say, I'm gay and I, and I want to be straight. And Freud would go, well, why do you want to be straight? And of course they're using Austrian language in this situation, but uh, you know, why, why do you want to be straight? And, and these people would say, well, because everyone hates me and my parents are dis, are disowning me and society bullies me. That's why I want to be straight. And Freud's like, well, I don't, I don't think that's a good enough reason to, for you to change who you are. If, if the only reason why you want to change this aspect of your personality is because everyone is disapproving of it, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. I don't think that's a good enough reason for us to add that as a goal for psychotherapy. 
Okay, so I have more to say about Freud, but let's do that after the break. All right, we're back from the break. If you heard me earlier, you heard me say that this episode is brought to you, actually this whole month's episode are brought to you by Talkspace. Go there, get your online counseling on, and use the promo code KIRK for a discount and to signal to Talkspace that you are one of my listeners. All right, so still continuing with Freud and his um, very interesting history of conversion therapy and his thoughts about gay people. 1920, his paper published, The Psychogenesis of the Case of Homosexuality in Women. So in this, he is talking about lesbians, and he says that women who... He talks about a woman who had entered therapy because her parents were concerned that she was gay. And he writes, to convert a fully developed homosexual into a heterosexual does not offer much more prospect of success than the reverse. (laughs) So again, to convert a gay person to a straight person is as stupid and as successful as trying to change a straight person into a gay person is what he's saying. All right. 1935, the very famous situation here, 1935, toward the end of Freud's life when he was living in London. Uh, an American mother wrote Freud, or verbally asked him, but I think wrote him, and asked him to do conversion analysis on her son. So this American mother is like, my son is gay. Freud, please fix him. And Freud wrote back to her, and he wrote, I gather from your letter that your son is a homosexual. It is nothing to be ashamed of, no vice, no degradation. It cannot be classified as an illness. We consider it to be a variation of the sexual function produced by a certain arrest of sexual development. (laughs) So everything is just so great until that last clause there, right? He's saying, look, mother of this gay son, it appears your son is gay, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with your son. It's not an illness. It's just a variation of sexual function. And then he adds this bit, because your son is immature. (laughs) It's like, God, Freud, why'd you have to add that? Now, as we go further into the history of conversion therapy, you will find that even though Freud had this view that homosexuality was immature, he was decades and decades before his time. Uh, the vast majority of other people at this time did not share his view. He, was, he broke from, a, as we'll get into in a second. But, but, but anyway, so when he actually did engage in conversion therapy— he, he said, he stated, he wrote that, he's like, look, if, if we're going to actually succeed at conversion therapy, the patient must be willing to, to change. The, the, the patient must be like, I want to change. He also said that the patient must still carry a strong heterosexual tendency, at least equivalent to the homosexuality tendency. And, and, and then he concluded by saying, and so, so not only do you need, not only is the patient need to be willing, which 
many aren't, but he's saying, so if a gay person comes to me and says, please change me, they have to be willing to change if, because if they're not willing to change, I can't, I can't change them. Not only that, but they have to still have a strong heterosexual urge. So basically what he's saying is they have to be bisexual. They have to, they have to be attracted to, to the opposite gender. And then he says, and even then, even with those kind of rare circumstances, only bisexuality is possible. <laughs> so just think about what he's saying here is he's saying patients have to be willing and they have to be bisexual and the best I can give you is bisexuality. So isn't that kind of weird? <laughs> he's like, I can only make, I can only help bisexuals become more bisexual. <laughs> um, I, I, so I'm, I'm guessing what he means by that is, is in today's words, because he didn't use those, I'm using those words, but in today's words, basically what he's saying is, look, if, if you have a kid who you want to, to, marry someone of the opposite sex. The only chance this is going to work if that, if your kid is, is willing to engage in, in, in that goal with me. And then they have to, they still have to be very attracted to the opposite sex. And the only thing I can give you is they can, I I guess in a sense, live the heterosexual lifestyle, even though on the inside, they still have attraction to the same sex, but they just have to learn how to suppress that, I suppose. And so he, that's what he was saying. Now, it also seems that Freud believed that female homosexuality was much more problematic. It seems as though Freud was like, well, gay guys, yeah, you know, we don't need to worry about them, but gay women, oh boy, watch out for that. It's hard to say because he didn't write a ton about this, but there's speculation as to why he had a different point of view about women, which is because there's there's a there's a debate as to whether or not his daughter Anna Freud, who became a famous psychoanalyst herself later in life, but there's some debate that she was actually gay, and there's actually some evidence of this. It's hard to know; she might not have been, but. And some people like to see all sorts of things in, in places that they don't exist. But of the, of the quote-unquote um, evidence that I've seen, I, I, I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe. But it's hard to know is the thing. And Freud, Sigmund Freud loved his daughter, Anna, and uh, maybe was very threatened for, I guess, similar reasons to, to the reason why parents today are sometimes threatened by their daughters being lesbian and was much more homophobic about uh, female homosexuality. And there's also evidence seemingly, well, there's not evidence, but accounts of Sigmund psychoanalyzing Anna over the span of like a thousand different sessions. So Sigmund analyzed his daughter and over I think something like 900 hours of psychoanalysis. And it's speculated that a big part of that was Sigmund trying to change his daughter into a heterosexual. But there's a lot of speculation there. It's hard to know. But it's an interesting little twist, especially when I tell you Anna Freud's position on uh, homosexuality in a second here. Okay, so that's Freud. 
And until I investigate, did a deep dive on this, I had no idea Freud even talked about it, let alone had so much to say. And it's interesting. Okay, so let's go to 1932, Melanie Klein. She had a, a famous case called Mr. B, Mr. B as in Mr. Bob. And she writes extensively in one of her books about Mr. B. Mr. B was a home. She she says he was a homosexual man in his thirties, and he initially came to Klein for help for his depression and his problems at work. So pretty common presenting problem. And uh, at at some point, she discovered that he was gay. And instead of focusing on his depression and his work problems, she says we gotta we gotta target you being gay. We gotta change that. So Melanie Klein believed not only that being gay was pathological, but it absolutely needed to be changed. Melanie Klein did. And so she analyzed him and made all these just extremely odd interpretations. And you really just have to read her book on this. It is, it is interesting, to say the least. Because Klein already had some interesting language about like the good breast and the bad breast and stuff. And some of it made sense, and some of it is just ridiculous. And this whole Mr. B case is utter ridiculousness. When you read this, I I have a mixed feeling about Melanie Klein, and after reading the Mr. B case, I have uh, the 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 scale has definitely tipped toward. I'm not quite so sure about Melanie Klein and how she saw the world. There, there's definitely some good things about Melanie Klein provided a lot of things actually to the way I see, not a lot, but some, at least some foundational things about object relations. But, but anyway, so you, you really should read this because she basically, to me, when I read Melanie Klein's uh, um, conceptualization of this homosexual man, it is like the, it's like someone wrote a parody of a psychoanalyst analyzing someone in this really stupid way. There's like all this psychoanalytic, all these psychoanalytic terms just thrown in there. And it seems like, man, you are stretching it. She talks about the Oedipus complex, of course. And she also has this term that I've never heard before. Instead of the good breast and bad breast, she has the good penis and the bad penis. (laughs) And now, you know, these terms are wonderful to use when you're having sexual relations with your partner, by the way. It's, it's good sort of dirty talk, you know. Give me the bad penis tonight, honey. <laughs> oh, God. Um. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so she basically saw that Mr. B's homosexuality was being caused by his anger at his father, his early childhood anger at his father, you know, hence the Oedipus complex. She also attributed his homosexuality to the fact that he was fed by a bottle instead of by the mother's breast, which led him to believe that breasts were evil. And um, so here's a quote. And there's many, many great quotes, but this is, this is just one of them. 
This process has been assisted by his equation of the breast with the father's dangerous penis, which he thought had been put inside her body and was reemerging from it, unquote. So basically what she's saying here is the reason why he became gay is because he had a very conflictual relationship with the father's dangerous penis, which he wasn't abused by his dad. So it's just an Oedipal symbolic thing, I suppose. And he thought that the dangerous father penis was emerging from the mother's body in the form of a breast. So just think about She was saying this literally, you know, this is not, this is not some symbolism stuff. She's, she's saying that as a child, this man hated, was, was afraid of the dad's penis and saw the penis emerging from the mother's body in the, in the form of a breast and ended up resenting the breast. And that made him hate women so that he can't actually be attracted to them. And if, and if this, and Mr. B, if, if he could uh, overcome and adore, if he could overcome these issues and, and learn to love the good penis, then he would become heterosexual. And she actually claimed that she converted him. She claimed that through this analysis that she was able to cure him of his homosexuality, which I find to be highly skeptical. I, in my, now of course we'll never know, but I, my guess is that Mr. B was like, what in the world is this woman saying to me? And then eventually despite like, you know what, Melanie, you cured me. And then he just walked out of the office. But that, that woman is cray. Who knows? I don't know what happened, but at least I'd like to think that's what happened because uh, I'm just imagining a gay man in the 1930s saying, you know, what is this woman talking about? Like, I'm I'm not attracted to women because I think that women's breasts are my dad's penis. Like what? Because when I was a kid, I hated my mom's boobs because I was afraid of my dad. What are you talking about? I'm just gay, woman. Okay. So skipping forward to 1948, we have the famous Kinsey report. You You all know Kinsey and his team. And they released the publication Sexual Behavior of the, in the Human Male. So male sexuality. And he found that at least 6% of men had reported experiencing homosexual encounters. So at the time in, in 1948, it was believed that homosexuality was extremely rare. I, I'm guessing if you polled people, they'd say, like, oh, we're talking like, you know, 0.01% of men engage in homosexual behavior. That's extreme. Kinsey finds that at least 6% of men, if not more, because some people aren't going to report it, but of the people in his sample, 6% reported that they had had the homosexual encounters. And so you're, you're like, whoa, at least one in, one in 20, maybe one in 10 men have had a homosexual encounter. Then that makes it not so unusual. It makes it way more normal, right? And that's what he concluded. He he was like, I've interviewed lots of people about it, and I conclude that it's totally normal. And this was just uh, earth-shattering to the world of 1948 and, and in the 1950s. I mean, just imagine that, that this extremely respected 
a team of researchers and I, I believe they're physicians come out with this report and just say in black and white, look, homosexuality is normal. Lots of dudes engage in it. No big deal. Nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, and, uh, very controversial. And we're still experiencing the ripples of that today. Um, okay. So 1950s, from what I read, it sounds like that's when conversion therapy really exploded, but really that's when therapy exploded. After the war, there was much more interest in being a psychotherapist of various kinds, whether it was psycho as being a psychoanalyst or a cognitive therapist or behavioral therapist. And there was some, there's a lot more interest in, in, in getting that service. And so uh, it seems along with that explosion, there was also an explosion in conversion therapy. Now we're at, we're at the time of Anna Freud. So Anna Freud was active in the, in the forties and fifties. And Anna Freud had a very different view than her father. Uh, incidentally, I was just in London and went to their London home, and it's it's where F- Sigmund lived with his wife and his kids, including Anna Freud. And it's a wonderful museum if you if you go. It's it's mainly dedicated to Sigmund, but it's also dedicated to Anna. And I was walking down the street. It's in Hampstead, Hampstead, Hampstead uh, London, and I'm walking down the street, and just a few doors down. There's the Anna Freud Family Therapy Institute or something, and there are kids being treated or something on the inside, and I could see kids playing, and and so Anna Freud's vision is still living on, um, and so is Sigmund's. But anyway, Anna had a very different view than her father. She saw homosexuality completely as a disorder, and she saw gay people as absolutely needing to be converted. Now, her view, as I've been saying, was probably shared by everyone else around her. I mean, we heard, we saw Melanie Klein's point of view. Freud's point of view and, and the Kinsey report were, were shining beacons of hope in a sea of dominant viewpoints regarding gay people and pathology and the need to change that. And Anna Freud was another one of those people. Now, if what if she was gay, then maybe it was internalized heterosexism. Or if she wasn't gay, was she a product of her time? Um, it's it's hard to know. But anyway, in 1949, she published some some clinical remarks concerning the treatment of cases of male homosexuality. So. Uh, she published a thing about about gay men. And she claimed in this document that she could convert homosexual men to heterosexuality. So this, this was a paper that was specifically written to showcase her ability to engage in conversion therapy. Skipping forward to 1956, Anna Freud recommended to a journalist, she said... Kate, you know that letter that my father wrote to that American woman about her son? And so I'll I'll go back and read that letter. Again, he wrote, so Freud in 1935 wrote, I gather from your letter that your son is homosexual. It is nothing to be ashamed of. 
it's not a problem, it's not an illness, and we consider it to be a normal variation of sexual function, although it is, it is immature. Well, Anna Freud uh, was very concerned about this letter. She was really trying to suppress it. She didn't want people to, because by then Freud had died and couldn't further expand on his view of homosexuality. And, and Anna didn't want, and people really revered Freud's words. And so she didn't want people to know about this letter. She didn't want people to know that Freud considered homosexuality to be normal. And she said that, quote, nowadays we can cure many more homosexuals than was thought possible in the beginning. The other reason is that readers, readers of that letter, readers may take this as confirmation that their, that, that their defects or immoralities do not matter and that they should be happy with them. That would be unfortunate, unquote. So basically she's saying, if, if, people, if people learn about this letter that Sigmund wrote, then they're just going to believe that homosexuality is okay. And it's not okay. It needs to be changed, and we and it's immoral, and blah blah blah. And so it's just interesting that Anna, you know. But again, most people, if not all, thought the same way back then. All right, skipping forward to the nineteen. Again, I'm leaving out a lot of history, but I could have talked about Ferenczi. I could talk about others, but anyway, 1960s, the gay rights movement. There was a riot in 1969 at the Stonewall Bar in New York. A completely justified riot, uh, long overdue in some ways. And in 1973, so, um, uh, you know, insert document documentary about the gay rights movement that happened. I think a movie's coming out about Stonewall. I think it's just called Stonewall. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so in among all the other civil rights movements that were happening at the time, uh, there was a gay rights movement. And in 1973... The American Psychiatric Association, the people who publish the DSM, they removed homosexuality as a mental disorder from the DSM. From the DSM, but they left in what they call ego dystonic homosexuality. In other words, people who don't want to be homosexual. So, so if you're if you're homosexual and you like it and you like your homosexuality, then that's fine. That's not an illness. But if you are homosexual, but you don't want to be homosexual, and you consider that to be like if like a sickness that you're suffering from, then we'll leave that in the DSM and we'll we'll treat that. So so it was sort of a half measure to some extent. But in 1987, they completely removed even that as well. So um, it was a, kind of a slow process. Okay, skipping forward to the 1990s. Talking Bill Clinton, grunge, that kind of stuff. As liberals gained power in the 1990s, Christian groups started to fight back. And Christian groups started spending lots of money on anti-gay things, including promoting conversion therapy. Okay, so now let's get up to the, the, you know, 2000s. So we're talking... 2000 to 2010-ish, maybe 2013 or something. There's a concerted effort to do a lot of research on what on the on the LGBT experience and on conversion therapy. 
And what they found was a resounding unanimous decision that conversion therapy does not work. It just doesn't work. It doesn't change people into a different sexual orientation. It doesn't work. In the same way that you can't take a heterosexual person and convert them into a gay person. It just you and you can't you can't take a, take a cisgender person and convert them through therapy into a transgender person and vice versa. You just can't do it. They also found that through research, through empirical research, that there are many negative outcomes when this form of therapy is subjected upon people. And here are the, here's the list of uh, negative effects that happen after conversion therapy. Depression, guilt, helplessness, hopelessness, shame, social withdrawal, suicidality, substance abuse, stress, self-blame, decreased self-esteem, decreased authenticity to other people, increased self-hatred, hostility and blame towards one's parents, feelings of anger and betrayal, loss of friends and potential romantic partners, problems in sexual and emotional intimacy, sexual dysfunction, high-risk sexual behaviors, a feeling of being dehumanized and untrue to the self, a loss of faith, which I thought was interesting, and a sense of having wasted time and resources. So so they researched it extensively in the, in the early 2000s and found that not only does it not work, it's worthless therapy, but it has just a slew of negative effects. And so scholars and researchers and, uh, you know, therapists, they reached a fairly quick consensus that conversion therapy is completely unethical. It's harmful and that it's based on societal prejudice and bias beliefs, which should be uh, disregarded when it comes to mental health. Uh, or, you know, the basis of disorders and treatment. Um, and as a result of that, many professional organizations came out against conversion therapy. Uh, the American Psychological Association said it was, they officially said that conversion therapy is unethical. And they say, quote, altering sexual orientation is not an appropriate goal of psychiatric treatment, unquote. AAMFT, uh, the Marriage and Family Therapy Association, also considers it unethical. Quote, the association does not consider homosexuality a disorder that requires treatment, and as such, we see no basis for such therapy. Unquote. All, uh, many other organizations also came out against conversion therapy, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, the American Counseling Association, the National Association of School Psychologists, the National Association of Social Workers, the World Psychiatric Association, and so on and so on. However, there is one group of, of counselors, one profession, that it, did not come out against it, but I'll talk about that after the break. All right, we're back from the break. Again, this episode brought to you by Talkspace. Go to Talkspace, use the promo code KIRK and get a discount on your online counseling. Okay, so just got done reviewing all the various organizations, not all of them, but the key ones in my life anyway, that came out in opposition of conversion therapy. 
in the after the year 2000. And one group did not. The American Association of Christian Counselors, they amended their code of ethics by eliminating the promotion of conversion therapy for homosexuals. So apparently their ethical code was actually promoting conversion therapy specifically. Their, their ethical code was saying something like, um, these forms of therapy are ethical, or so, I don't know what it was saying, but but they removed that. So they stopped promoting conversion therapy. But they said that when you talk with a LGB person, you should uh, perhaps, instead of conversion therapy, you should try to get them to be celibate. So the American Association of Christian Counselors, their friggin' ethical codes encourages making gay and bisexual people celibate because presumably they won't sin that way. But again, to remind people, half, if not more than half of Christians are completely supportive of gay marriage, which to me indicates that they're fine with gay people. So anyway, all right, American Association of Christian Counselors, if any listeners out there are part of that organization, let me know because I'm interested in what your thoughts are on that. And I encourage you to get them to change that ridiculousness. That's just silly. All right. Now, after all this, we got research, definitively much research saying it doesn't work, doesn't do shit. And it has all these terrible effects. And of course, the main ethical principle is to do no harm. And this, this form of therapy does harm people. It has been shown to do harm. Uh, it's like physician. It's like you go to your physician and they put leeches on your body to cure you of your flu. It's that ridiculous. It's stupid. It's based on ridiculous social uh, attitudes that go back way far than we should be thinking at this point. And even Freud knew that it was fine for the most part. And even way back in, in Hungary, in the early 1800s, people were like, no, it's fine, let it go. And we're still, even after all that, people are still engaging in conversion therapy. It's 2017. There is still, it's still around. Um, now, the prevalence has drastically reduced, but it hasn't gone away. For example, there was a study in 2012, so maybe it's different now, but I'm guessing not that different. Although things are changing quite rapidly regarding this issue, I I have to say. But anyway, 2012, a study published about a uh, what these researchers did is they surveyed a bunch of faculty in master's and doctorate training programs. So they... They sent out and they they sent letters and surveys to eighty eight different counseling training programs in the United States, and they got a hundred and seventeen faculty members to send back the survey about their attitudes. And here's what they found: three out of one hundred and seventeen facts. So remember, there's just there's about one hundred and twenty faculty. Three of the faculty said that they thought it was ethical to practice conversion therapy. 
Okay, so three faculty members in 2012 said, yeah, it's conversion therapy is ethical. Now, on one hand, it's appalling to think that three faculty members would say such a stupid thing. But on the other hand, you got to let me explain one thing is that faculty members are typically older. We you know, you have faculty ranging from 30 to 80. I have a colleague, Jerry Saltzman, who's in his 70s and going strong. <laughs> and so, uh, which is a wonderful thing about my profession, I just have to say, is that I never have to retire because I can be quite, um, I, it, there, it doesn't take a lot of energy to be a therapist and a professor, let's put it that way. Mental energy, but not physical energy. Anyway, my point is, is that the faculty at these training programs span a lot of different generations. So maybe as some of these older instructors retire, we'll, we'll see that three number go down to zero. I don't know. But so, so one way of looking at this is, <clears throat> well, that's kind of a bummer that we still have three faculty. Uh, so about, you know, two and a half percent of faculty say that conversion therapy is, is ethical. But on the other hand, what we could say, glass half full, is 97.5, 97.5, almost virtually everyone, almost everyone, almost every faculty member in, in counseling and therapy training programs think that conversion therapy is unethical, which is great because I'm guessing that number was a lot lower 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, obviously with some of the history that we've been talking about. One out of the 117 faculty said that they actually teach conversion therapy. So that's pretty scary. There's about one, less than 1%, but still some faculty who are out there uh, probably today teaching conversion therapy. Yikes. Now, here's an interesting one. Zero of the 117 faculty said that students are allowed to use it at their internship. So although... Three said it's on three said it's ethical. One said they teach it, and zero said that their students are allowed to use it. So that's interesting. Only twenty-one faculty said that they teach about the negative effects of conversion therapy. Now, this can be interpreted a number of ways. One is is that you can say, "Wow, only twenty-one out of one hundred and seventeen faculty." say, you know, think that conversion therapy has negative effects. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that take it from me as a faculty member in a program that we only have so much time to teach on. There's so many topics to teach. There's so many things that you have to teach. And I imagine that many faculty either don't teach those courses that are relevant to talking about conversion therapy or they just don't have the time to hit every single topic uh, subject. So, so there's that. Um, and it could be argued that since so many of us consider it and know it to be unethical just on its face, that it's not hugely necessary to talk about the negative effects. But honestly, uh, I think all faculty, every, each program should at least have a module on this topic because I think it is important. 
Five of the faculty said that it's ethical to refer a client based solely on sexual orientation of the client. So very few, very few faculty said that it's ethical to refer a client based solely on the sexual orientation of that client. Ten said that they believe that students should be allowed to not work with gay and lesbian and bisexual clients based on the therapist's religious beliefs. So if you want to hear more about all this stuff, about refusing to treat LGBTQ clients, listen to my episode that I did recently on, that's called Bigoted Therapists, Bigoted Therapists, and I go into full detail on all that stuff and the laws and whatnot. Now, even though the country is heading in one direction in terms of ever-increasing acceptance of the fact that LGBTQ people are here and they are fine. So in spite of that very clear change in our society in America over the last um, few decades, the Republican Party has become more anti-LGBTQ in recent uh, times, particularly under Trump. The uh, but it's not just Trump's problem. It's it's all it's the whole general Republican thing because the Republicans at the last party convention in 2016 adopted its most anti-LGBTQ platform that they've ever had in history. Now, one could say that they didn't need it before. They didn't need to state it explicitly before because society said it for them. But... At any rate, the Republicans have put a firm stake in the ground saying that they are not going to support pro-LGBTQ legislation. And, you know, Jesus Christ, come on, people. There are also prominent professionals that are still doing conversion therapy and people that who are still famous for that. Jason Graves being one of them, but also Dr. Nicolosi was a, a clinical psychologist. He actually just died this year, but he was well known and well and spoke out and was, you know, I think on Dr. Phil and these kinds of places. Now, what are their arguments currently? What are what are the arguments for conversion therapy? The people who are proponents of conversion therapy, why do they think that it's necessary. Well, there's a lot of pseudoscience around this, a lot of uh, false claims, including that it's bad for children. They will make claims that homosexual parents are empirically bad for kids and the kids of homosexual parents have worse outcomes. And that's just not true. In fact, they seem to have potentially better outcomes, but that's probably a result of the fact that um, homosexual people, uh, on average, I think, earn more money and tend to have more stable... Anyway, <laughs> I don't have that research in front of me. But the point is, is that the argument for conversion therapy is like, look, we got to get rid of gay people in our society because it's bad for kids. And that's just not true. They'll also say that being gay is bad for your mental health, which is also not true. The only reason why... It's potentially bad for your mental health. It's because society is marge- because society treats people badly. In the same way that if you're African American or you're Native American, 
in America, you're more likely to suffer from various different mental conditions, anxiety, PTSD, um, depression. The reason for that is not because being African-American or being Native American biologically makes you more problematic in, in, in the head. It's because society treats you like crap and and treats your family like crap, which stresses out your parents and blah, 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 and results in more problems for your head. So we wouldn't pathologize African-Americans and Native Americans. What we pathologize is society. So just because LGBTQ people suffer from more suicidality, more depression, more anxiety, the reason for that is because of society, not because of them. They will also say that homosexuality incurs more sexually transmitted infections, which is also not true. I mean, anyone who, can, who engages in unsafe sex, regardless of their sexual orientation, is taking a risk. So, you know, it doesn't matter. And there are plenty of LGBTQ people who are extremely safe individuals. In fact, well, I don't know the statistics in my head, but I'll just move on. They will also say that being gay is immoral. They'll say that it's immoral to be gay, which, of course, is false because I said so. <laughs> um, and the reason why I say so is because morality is generally accepted as related to harm, and ethics. Now, there's philosophers who've been talking about this going back to Plato and Aristotle and all those people, but, and I guess even before that, that's just not been documented in other societies. But the point is, is that it's pretty well accepted in American society that the, it's, the real morality is related to harm, intentional harm on other people, or even like... Um, well, just general harm to other people, like punching someone in the face for no reason is immoral. Rape is immoral. Murder is immoral. Stealing from someone is immoral. Two consenting adults having sex is not immoral. So let's put that behind us. They'll also say that being gay is unnatural because they don't understand science. <laughs> They'll also say that being gay is anti-family, which, of course, is ridiculous. They must not know gay families. They'll also say that gays are over-sexualized. This is a common one, uh, which, of course, is just not true. When you study people gay and straight, you find similar rates of sexuality in terms of frequency. Plus, even if gay people were, quote-unquote, over-sexualized, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with being over-sexualized. There's nothing wrong with flaunting what you got. There's nothing wrong with being, quote-unquote, promiscuous. That's, that's not immoral. It's just you don't like that. And if you don't want to do that for yourself, then great. But if someone else wants to have sex every day with a different person, that is completely up to them. So knock it off, you Puritan person. They'll also say that it's un-American. And to me, America is defined by getting rid of marginalization, by thinking logically about things, by not allowing a oppressive group 
to oppress another group. That's America. It was, we were, we were founded on those principles. We didn't really live up to them until much later, but that's what we were founded on anyway. And there's nothing more American to me than a marginalized group of people striking back by, ad, by advocating, by raising awareness, by speaking out, by getting elected to office, by making art, by changing professional standards like in psychotherapy. There's nothing more American than that. We have repeatedly done this. The civil rights movement, the civil war, our movements to repair the damage done from Japanese Americans being in prison during World War II. The, this is America. You can have the flag fly high in the wind when oppressed groups fight back. That is America. It's, it's disgusting to me the way that the flag is being um, co-opted or subverted by un-American people that try to oppress. Essentially, um, conservative, I don't know what the term, bigoted people who show the flag and think that it's, it, it, it symbolizes white supremacy and the old ways and traditional gender values and, and stereotypes. That's not American. That's not, a, that's not my America. And I don't know, if I, and most Americans who are American and like America can, are supportive of gay marriage. So I don't know what America they are holding up when they're, when they're flying that flag. So it's un-American, they claim, to be gay. And I say there's nothing more American than being gay. Well, it's very American to be gay. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. It shows courage against the man. It shows individuality. It shows that you accept who you are. Um, it's, it's, um, to be gay is to, be, to have more courage by definition. And so, uh, you know, land of the brave, land of the free, America. Anyway, they will say that being gay is a sin, which is not a scientific statement. We don't know. You know, it depends on your definition of sin. But most, half, if not more than half, of Christians consider being gay not a sin. So, so there's that. They'll say it's against the Bible. They'll say that they're not living the righteous path. They're saying that they'll say that they're straying from God or they're condemned to hell. They'll point to Scripture, including Jesus talking about things. They'll say, I read this article that was defending the um, side of Christianity that says that being gay is wrong. And they, they were talking about how having sex is about having babies. And since gay people, by definition, can't conceive through their sex, then they shouldn't be having sex. Which is, I just think, like, how does that make sense? So, so every time a heterosexual married couple has sex, they're supposed to be trying to have a kid. Like, uh, the, I don't know if many people believe that anymore. They'll also say that children have the right to a mother and a father. And 
I don't know what that means. You, you talk to kids who have two dads or two moms or, or five dads, and they don't care. <laughs> they, they love their parents, and they love being loved by their parents. It, it'd be like saying everyone deserves to have a parent of every different ethnicity or something. It's like, or every, everyone deserves to have a tall parent and a short parent. It's like, what does that even mean? What, who cares? Um, every child deserve to be, deserves to be loved, and the, the more love, the better. Yeah. And having more than one parent is often a better thing because you can get more attention and your parents can take breaks and they can support each other. And so, yeah, uh, being a single parent can be, cre- uh, on average, creates issues that are hard to overcome regarding parenting. So, yeah, you could say having two parents is, is probably better, but empirically it doesn't matter if they're gay or straight. Okay. So before I get into the laws and whatnot, I just, I just want to remind us that uh, of the debate regarding, and the debate is sort of going on right now, which is what about people who want conversion therapy? You know, the people that I've seen in Jason Graves videos, they are desperate for, for, for conversion therapy. They're not, they're, it's not being imposed upon them. These are adults, like 40-year-old people who are desperate for what they think is help to change them from gay to straight. They, they, they desperately want that. Now, we can say that's based on society and it's, it's bigotry and it's bias and it's prejudice and that when our society changes, people won't want to change in this way anymore because they don't, they won't have any reason to, but shouldn't an adult be able to choose the kind of therapy that they want to go through, especially when it's something like this, there are, there are people who have surgery to put like, um, you've seen those people who have like that donut put under their, their forehead. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's this surgery, this plastic surgery that maybe it's like silicone or something. And they, they, it's a donut shaped ring that they put underneath their forehead skin. And it looks very odd, but doesn't, don't people have the right to choose to do that? It's America's land of the free and people should have the right, even if it's based on something sort of odd, some kind of odd belief, right? Well, if someone has an odd belief that being gay is wrong and, and they don't want to be gay and they want a certain service to help them not be gay, then shouldn't they be allowed to engage in that therapy? Well, that's, that's an interesting debate. And you'll, you'll hear things on both sides. I don't know what to think about that, honestly, because I, I'm a, I, I have a, a libertarian streak in me. And when I think about America, I think about land of the free and I think about not impinging on people's freedoms unnecessarily. And if, and if a human being after being um, uh, told that they might be only wanting this because of society's weird norms and they still want it, then, then they should be able to get it. Right. I mean, it's, it's their choice. You can't stand in their way. That's, that doesn't seem right. But on the other hand, 
I, I know it's clear to me that the only reason why anyone would want it is because of that. It's because society is making them feel like crap. And if society would stop doing that already, then they won't feel that way anymore. But on the other hand, society is not going to stop that anytime soon. It, it, oppression, marginalization, hatred against LGBTQ people is not going to stop anytime soon. It's, it's here and it's, it's changing, but it's going to be a while before it's significantly gone. And so, you know, I I don't know. I don't know what to think. I, I don't, I don't have answers for that. Also, another scary thing about, about making a particular therapy illegal is that um, when you when you when the law starts getting involved in the, in the medical field and in the field of psychotherapy, I, I always get a little worried because what if some other therapy comes along that the current cultural zeitgeist and the and the political forces just don't really like, and then they just they don't like it and they just make it illegal. And I don't know, just. I'm wary of the government getting involved. But anyway, the government is getting involved. And for the most part, I consider it a victory. Um, so so for the most part, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I feel, I mean, I definitely feel good about the laws that have been changing that are pro-LGBTQ. Uh, but there is a, there's an asterisk to that joy, but mostly joy. Okay, so this is as of 2017, because I'm sure it, over the next five, 10 years, there's going to be even more victories in this area, particularly one, which I'll get to in a second. But currently in, in September or early October, 2017, nine States in the United States have laws that ban conversion therapy for minors. So this is, this is for minors. You have to understand not, not for adults. You have New Jersey, California, California was the first, I think in 2012, you have New Jersey, California, Illinois, Vermont, New Mexico, Rhode Island, Nevada. Those are the, those are the nine. And for whatever reason, not Washington, which completely blows my mind because Washington is traditionally an extremely liberal and, and Oregon too. Um, so there's that. But I, I was thinking that maybe it's because there's actually a pending federal act called the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act that will ban conversion therapy in all the states. So there's there's an act that is trying to be pushed forward in the House and the Senate to try to ban it in all the states. And it's being authored and pushed by Rep- Representative Ted Lieu from California, Senator Patty Murray, Patty Murray from Washington, and Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. And so Senator Patty Murray in Washington, I'm wondering if she's like, look, Washington state, don't worry about your laws at this point, because we're going to make it illegal in every state. So let's, let's pour our energy into that stuff. I I don't know. I I don't, I don't really know what the answer is to that. Um, However, it it has been made illegal in Seattle. Uh, So it's, it's a, it's illegal in Seattle, in the city of Seattle only and nowhere else in Washington. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, and you know, just take a guess as to what political party those three, uh, those three people are. 
They're all Republicans. Just joking. Now, there's pending legislation also in other places like Delaware, Hawaii, Iowa, Kansas, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New York, Pennsylvania, Texas, uh, Washington State, um, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. So uh, we'll see what happens with there. There's also a number of cities that have and counties that have made it illegal, like Washington, D.C., like I said, Seattle, Pima County, Arizona, three cities in Pennsylvania, five cities in Ohio, and several cities in Florida. So the the Florida thing and the Ohio thing, I speculate that the reason why this is happening is because the the state government is anti-LGBTQ rights. But Florida has a number of gay people in it. Miami Beach, these kinds of places. And and there's a lot of them. And so they have a lot of political power in those particular municipalities and therefore are able to pass laws in their cities independent of the of the overall state politics. So um, uh, several cities, probably like 20 different cities in Florida have passed laws banning conversion therapy, which I, I find just to be this... Florida is a very interesting state. Let's just put it that way. Also, it should be noted that in the judicial system, many U.S. courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, have repeatedly sided with LGBTQ rights regarding conversion therapy. So the court is on our side uh, in that way. Also, regarding international stuff, Malta was the first European nation to ban conversion therapy. So that's interesting. All right, so let's take a break, and when we get back, let's talk about some statistics here. All right, back from the break. Again, this episode brought to you by Talkspace, online counseling. Use the promo code KIRK, K-I-R-K, to get your discount. Okay, so let's look at some statistics regarding support for same-sex marriage because I find this to be incredibly uh, heartwarming. Okay, so when we look at statistics, because in today's world, especially if you're watching CNN and Fox News, which I don't recommend, by the way, it looks like Trump owns everything. He dominates. And it's like, I have been avoiding Trump over the past few months. And I have to say, like, the farther I avoid him, the more I realize that he's just a tweet person. And he has very little to do with actual American lives. If you just ignore him... (laughs) It's like there's there's a whole other there's a lot of things happening in America and even in politics that really have nothing to do with Trump. And the fact that people pay attention to him so much is exactly what he wants and is exactly what got him elected. The fact that we pay particularly Democrats pay so much attention to him. He loves that stuff. Even if you hate him, he loves it. And the alt-right loves it when Trump pisses us off. So the more pissed off you get, the more the alt-right feels like they're winning. And so now this doesn't mean you ignore national politics or anything, but I'm saying like, just ignore the tweets. When this is, I'm a therapist and I've treated, and I know a lot of you are therapists out there. We've treated teenagers and kids before, right? 
And one sometimes a strategy, or and I've, there's a lot of parents out there too, right? A lot of teachers out there. All of us know that when you're dealing with a cantankerous kid, one who's acting out, trying to get a lot of attention, the first thing you do is stop giving them attention. You you stop engaging. You stop allowing yourself to get provoked. You stop allowing them to push your buttons. It's classic. You you stop. And what happens? Well, they stop trying to push your buttons. And what happens if you respond every single time they push your buttons? Well, they keep pushing your buttons. So that's Trump, <laughs> pushing your buttons. And uh, I just, I recommend, I, I'm a therapist. I'm not here to tell people how to act politically, but as a human being in this country, I'm telling you, for me, I find it not only more sanity-producing to not pay attention to his ramblings, but also gives me much more what I think to be a better perspective of what's really happening in this country. For example, even though Trump is president, there has been a steady increase in the amount of people who support same-sex marriage, even when we think about the past year. So let's just look at one group of people, evangelical Christians. These are the most conservative, aside from Jehovah Witnesses, they're, they're the most conservative group, and there's a lot of them. Something like 20, 25% of Americans consider themselves evangelical. It's a lot of people. You know, that's like 100 million people, 75 million people. And they um, have been steadily becoming more and more supportive of same-sex marriage. If we go back to 2001, evangelicals were only 13% of them were supportive of of, of same-sex marriage. 13% back in 2001. So that's, that's not a lot of people. Each year, it it gets more and more and higher and higher and higher. And then let's look at 2016, last year, before Trump was president, 27% of evangelicals support same-sex marriage. 27%. Not great, but to some might be surprising. Now, what happens between 2016 and 2017? Well, Trump's president, right? He's their man. And therefore, they should be emboldened, and and this number should go down, right? They should hate gay people. But no, it has one of its biggest jumps of all time. It goes from 27% to 35%. Now, that's still shitty. It should be 100 freaking percent. But we're definitely rapidly heading in the right direction. In one year, again, in, in Trump's America, 2017, Evangelical Christians, 35% of them support same-sex marriage, 35%. And it's and that number is just going up and up and up. And I predict in the next, I'm guessing, three years, that number will cross 50%, maybe five years. Isn't that wonderful to think that in, in three to five years, most evangelicals will support same-sex marriage? Now, let's look at other kinds of Christians. Let's look at Protestants, which are another large group of Christians. Well, similar thing. Since 2001, they 
when 2001, they were at 38% support same-sex marriage, now 68%. So they've steadily increased from 38% to 68%. Now, again, it should be 100%, but still looking good. Black Christians, African-American Christians, went from 30% to 44%. So not great, but again, still increasing, and it's just a matter of time before that is, you know, close to 100%. Catholics went from 40% to 67%. And um, other groups, we have uh, Buddhist people, currently 88% of them support same-sex marriage. We have Hindu people, 71% support same-sex marriage currently. Jehovah Witness, only 16%. So Jehovah Witness are extremely... Uh, against same-sex marriage. Jewish people, 81%. Mormon people, 36%. Boo. Muslim people, 45%. Not great. And unaffiliated, unaffiliated, so these are your atheists, your agnostics, your uh, spiritual but not religious, 83%. So the two, the three biggest groups, you got Buddhist people, you got Jewish people, and you got basically non-religious people are around 80 to 90% supportive of same-sex marriage. And the lowest is Jehovah Witness, way low at 16%. And then the next groups of people, you have uh, evangelicals and Mormons and Muslims in the 30s and 40s percent. And again, Catholics and regular Protestants um, are the vast you know majority of them in favor of it? So this is great, and I'm guessing in other areas we are also progressing. So our society is moving forward in spite of Trump, which I just want to point that out. And so my guess is is that eventually conversion therapy will be made illegal either individually in each state or will be federally illegal, which is wonderful. Eventually, those faculty who still hold on to the notion that it's ethical to do conversion therapy will either retire or or they'll change their mind. And we will be able to move forward. We will be able to put this behind us and move on to more important matters because this is ridiculous, people. Being lesbian, being gay, being bisexual, being trans, being queer, being asexual, being polysexual, or, you know, polyamorous, not polysexual, being polyamorous, all this is fine. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it empirically. There's nothing wrong with it morally. It's it's not un-American. It's not unnatural. Everything is fine, and there's nothing to be afraid of. And adults should be allowed to live the life that they want as long as it doesn't harm other people in this way. And the laws should reflect that. And our profession should not engage in practices that uphold the status quo and engage in marginalizing and harmful practices. It's, it's, it's obvious. It's obvious. And it's obvious to most people in our country, and it's obvious to the vast majority of faculty members and therapists and 
other mental health clinician uh, professionals in our field. It's it, it's when I went into this topic of, of conversion therapy, I my my general gestalt is one of joy and of optimism, and I it I mostly feel good about this. I feel like the whole the whole thing of conversion therapy has has almost been completely eradicated from our field there's some there's some rare holdouts and honestly to some extent i don't know if i necessarily care if there are a few few people who want that kind of therapy and there's a few practitioners who want to do that kind of therapy i don't know if i care too much about that it if if those if that client and clinician are consenting to that in these rare instances um, you know, I, I think, okay, eventually we'll change our society so that no client will want this anymore. Uh, and I, th- we're definitely heading in that direction. So, uh, I choose to see it in, in a positive light We're def you know, the numbers are getting better and better every year in spite of Trump, in spite of the Republicans. And, um, so Yay. Um, although whenever I think about stuff like this, it never should have been an issue anyway. The fact that we're overcoming this and we're, and the percentages are going up and up and we're passing legislation and we're marching in the streets and we're doing all these great things. It, you know, it, it's feels wonderful, but it's, but it's all, it, it, it's all unnecessary. This is self-evident. It should have been obvious to people centuries ago. It shouldn't have been a problem to begin with. You know, imagine if for some reason, hundreds of years ago, they just decided that having red hair was, there was something wrong with you. In fact, I think there was actually a belief that there was something wrong with you if you had, if you had red hair. And, but imagine if that was like still illegal. It was currently illegal to have red hair or it'd be illegal to treat people with red hair or it would be okay for people with red hair to um, be treated in a way that uh, changed them genetically so that they would never have red hair again. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, imagine if that were true. You'd be like, well, that's ridiculous. Why would you target that innocent group of humans for that arbitrary reason? Just red hair, who cares? Well, it's the same thing with being, with being LGBTQIA. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? They're, they, that boy likes boys. That woman likes to have sex with women. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It shouldn't ever have mattered to begin with. And so our success here is like we're winning something that we never should have been forced to have fought in the first place. So, boo? <laughs> Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. 